Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Democracy Ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajad Lee. And we are so excited to be doing a crossover show. And you know, it's it's when we get to do these with our other what do we say, Waj? Our our cousins, our cousins from across the our cousins from across the way. We get very excited about the opportunity to talk with other people who come with a racial lens and perspective um, to our politics. So, Waj, I will turn it over to you to introduce our esteemed guests. So, our esteemed guests, Steve Phillips and Charlene Chang, are the co-hosts of the awesome Democracy in Color podcast. And today, we have the ethnic fantastic four. Or uh, you could call it the Justice League or the Avengers. Uh, But if it's the Fantastic Four, I guess I'm the thing. I'll just take it. Um, And Steve has a a ridiculously long bio, so I'm just going to edit it. Uh, And here are the the juicy parts of his bio. He's the founder of Democracy in Color, an organization focused on race, politics, and the new American majority. He's the author of several books. His latest book is How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and ending white supremacy for good just came out in October. You all have to buy it. We're going to be talking about it. Steve is also, unfortunately, uh, a graduate of Stanford University, but that's okay <laughs> because then he went to Hastings. He's a recovering attorney. He's appeared on multiple radio and television networks, including NBC, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, and TV One. He's a columnist for the nation and a regular opinion contributor. And since I'm from the Bay Area, I will have to say that back in the day in 1992, he became the youngest person ever elected to public office in San Francisco and went on to serve as president of the San Francisco Board of Education. He is a man who's been in the trenches. He's an old head who's seen it all. And he's joined by Charlene Chang, his better podcast half, who lives in Berkeley. And I went to UC Berkeley. So all of a sudden, she is now my favorite of the two. Charlene <laughs> is a writer, editor, book coach, publicist, originally from Jersey. And apparently she was saying that she will outswear Danielle because she can flex her Jersey roots. But now she's in Berkeley. 
Her writing has appeared in BuzzFeed, Rumpus, Aussie, Hyphen, and Cam. She was a book editor and coach for a New York Times bestselling book called Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. And surprise, surprise, that was written by Steve Phillips and became a bestseller thanks to Charlene Chang's editorial help. You can follow her at Charlene Chang. Folks, it's great for you to join us. Thank you so much for everything that you do. We are going to start off with a really big question, an easy question. And -hmm. it's also a way to shamelessly promote promote Steve's book. Uh, And I'm going to go to Charlene first, just to to mix it up. Charlene, it's 2022 America. Uh, We recorded this last week. We're still waiting for the House, but most likely it seems Republicans might barely win. Democrats are going to hold on to the Senate. Trump is set to make his announcement that he's going to run for president again. Trump is a white supremacist, an anti-Semite, a misogynist, a vulgarian. How, how do we win the civil war moving forward and end white supremacy? First of all, Waj, I just need you to walk around with me, <laughs> making me feel really good about myself, especially when I go see my mom. Uh, but I'm, yes. I'm a very good hype man. I'm Flav of Flav pre VH1. It's 100 percent true. I just really uh, appreciate that. Uh, thank you. First of all, both to both of you, such uh, honor and pleasure to be here with you today. And I don't know if there's going to be an actual swear off, but I'm, I'm pretty thrilled. I, there's two parts of me. One is like the Jersey where I grew up and then left, you know, in my 20s, and I've been Berkeley long enough. Like people don't swear enough, so we'll see what happens. But yeah, I, you know, going back to your serious question, I think that as, you know, Steve and I worked on his new book, How We Win the Civil War, we'd lay it out real clearly. It's like, just, it's pretty, it's pretty common sense to me, which is like dance with the ones of Bronya, right? It is mm-hmm. leaning into like having the de- Democratic Party and those still in charge, which unfortunately is still predominantly white and patriarchal and, and male to pale to male, but just to understand that they cannot continue down the road that they consistently have, which is trying to lean into white swing voters. But it's like, take a look at who's gotten you here and consistently brings you the wins. It's a new American majority consisting of people of color who predominantly, you know, consistently vote Democratic and a meaningful minority of whites, Um, you know, progressive whites. And also that the demographics are shifting all the time. My child is 11. Her generation is predominantly people of color. Mm. And uh, as we've seen from this uh, midterm Results: How many young people are fired up and get what they have to do to, you know, stop fascism? So I, you know, a lot of the, a lot of what is, is has all the wins that we have had are spelled out in Steve's book, and he'll talk more about it today. But there are so many leaders and organizations out there who have proven and have put out a blueprint, you know, have given us evidence of how to win, and all we have to do is just follow it. So. I, I I love that. And I and I love that all we have to do is just follow it. And it always seems to me that Democrats will love to be, you know, Robert Frost and take the path less traveled than the one that we have all trampled on in order to say, hey, we're here, follow us. And so, Steve, you know, I, I want to hearken to to your title, you know, where you say, you know, where it's written and end white supremacy for good. Because I got to say, that's the boldest fucking statement I think I have ever spread in my that life. That is bold as fuck. I was, bold as fuck. I was like, he said, end it for good. I'm like, the whole entire country, damn near the planet, was founded on white supremacy. So do tell me, you know, and, and Waj, 
how you how you envision this and how as you were, you know, you were writing this book and you're thinking to yourself, no, 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 this is this is how we end it for good, knowing that it isn't going to be death of these older white racists, which is what we've constantly heard. But then Charlottesville showed us that, no, no, they're young. Right. And eager and ready, as did Kyle Rittenhouse. Right. So so tell us how you you make this this bold assertion that I want to be true. Steve, right before you jump in, just to keep it 100 and and as a witness, uh, as Danielle and I were talking on the phone before we jumped on, she said, and he said for good. What? (laughs) What? (laughs) But what's funny to peel back the curtain is that originally the book was going to be called, I have a file in my uh, computer, it was going to be called Once We Win the Civil War. This was my original thinking. And then... It took so it took so so much there in terms of getting us to how the Civil War never ended, taking that from the assassination of Lincoln five days after Appomattox, up until the uh, uh, insurrection, January 6, twenty twenty one, and then the five case studies I have in the book of the places where we are in fact winning. That I didn't have to I didn't have the space to do a third section around once we win. So that's really the epilogue. So that's when we changed it to how we win the Civil War, because it really is about those examples in part two. And then what's funny is that the how we win the Civil War, I don't know if you have better memory this than I do, Charlotte, but I believe that's my title. The yes. subtitle is actually from the publisher, the New Press. They had suggested this piece about um, ending white supremacy for good. And then part of what tantalized me a little bit about it is that they were saying that it's a double entendre. And so it's not just ending white supremacy mm. forever, but it's for the good of the country, mm. right? Mm. And so then there's that element of it of it as well. But you know, fundamentally, I mean, fundamentally, it is about winning and winning political power, and then governing in the interest, well, the interest of the the entire country. This is, I think, the, the lesson people have lost from Obama, uh, um, Obama's administration is that. It wasn't about winning over. It shouldn't have been about trying to win over people who were opposed to him. But once we were able to win, once we were able to pass health care, that was for everybody. It wasn't just for Democrats. It wasn't just for Obama supporters. And so that's the fundamental piece. There is a new American majority in this country. Mm-hmm. If we acknowledge it, embrace it, and invest in it, then mm-hmm. we can win political power. And then when mm-hmm. we have political power, we can actually govern in ways that benefit everybody. So that's the essence of the prescription. We can, we can, you know, debate whether or not forever and ever and ever, right? Somebody had, um, was it a cartoon they had? They had people on a boat, black folks on a boat in Jamestown. It says 1619. And then it says, well, they can't treat, they can't treat us like this forever, yeah. right? And so there is a whole kind <laughs> like, of- No, no, we can. Yes. We can. Just watch. Endurance yeah. to all of this. It, so I, I love the double entendre for good, right? And, and and I, you, you, the book has excellent examples where you go state by state. And I want to get into Arizona later in the show, but it's I'd be remiss to not, again, mention that looking at this Brady Bunch Fantastic Four panel, <laughs> we have a black queer woman. We have a, a practicing Muslim son of Pakistani immigrants. Uh, and also Danielle is the daughter of Jamaican immigrants. We got Charlene, Asian-American woman. We got Steve, a black man who is not Van Jones. 
They're two different people. Uh, <laughs> two very and I'm different. also mm-hmm. not Ali Velshi. I've been mistaken for Ali Velshi and Mehdi Hassan and Fried Zakaria. And ending white supremacy for good, both the double entendre for the betterment of a multiracial democracy and for good, inshallah, forever. Uh, the problem is, is that white supremacy and whiteness evolves and adapts and it contaminates people of color and it pits us against each other. Mm. And so we're seeing now the attack on Asian Americans. We're seeing mm-hmm. blacks versus Jews. That's happening right now as we speak with Kanye uh, and Kyrie. Uh, we're seeing Asian Americans and South Asians saying, oh, no, they're going to turn my kids into a transgender. I'm going to go vote for Republicans. How can we end white supremacy for good when so many, well, not so many, but many in our communities chase white supremacy? Mm. Charlene. I, I, I thank you so much for that um, question. I mean, here's a fact that we do all know, just as women, we internalize patriarchy and we uh, uphold it. And that is something yep. that uh, um, what we're seeing now is a movement, especially with the younger generation, to really dismantle it. I mean, I didn't grow up with this language, dismantle patriarchy. I didn't even know I was like so- soaking in it. So change does happen. Um, similarly for POCs, people of color, we many of us do in, in, uphold white supremacy. And in both those examples, what I'm saying is we, it is it is understandable the alignment with power because what is the majority, what is still still represents power as I believe power will shift to looking differently. And we're already seeing this um, with increasing numbers of women and women of color, of queer leaders getting elected. Just let's just talk about in the lane of electoral politics. I, I believe that for the upcoming generations, they will see that what a leader looks like and what power looks like looks and feels differently. And I have to have hope that the attitudes will shift. So I'm not saying that the journey and the arc isn't long. And I'm not saying that all the things that we're seeing are, are, make it very complicated in terms of, uh, I do, you know, the fact that people of color, we're not a monolith there. We do have, you know, different feelings about where we want to align and how we feel about ourselves as people of color and whether or not we feel that we can step into our power and if that represents power. But um, I feel like there, there will be a shift. And I feel like we even saw that if, with each election cycle, we're seeing more and more firsts, right? More and more people who represent and look more like us or are identify as us, uh, like many of us here do, are, are gaining an elected seats and are going to be a, in the center of making our democracy work for the rest of us. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that forced David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. 
Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Steve, can I get you in here? Because you've been trying to build this multiracial coalition for 30 years. Uh, You've seen it all. Uh, Your take on this. Well, I think it is helpful to look at it from a historical perspective. And and then that gives you, I think, two different insights. And one is, is how far we have come. And even like when the, the different things have happened politically more recently, and that having given these examples and studied them and put them into the book about the, the ubiquity of domestic terrorism within this country, right? So a lot of people mm-hmm. after the Dobbs decision came down, it's kind of like, well, you know, I've been fighting 50 years. I can't believe this is happening, et cetera. And I was like, well, they used to take us out and hang us from trees. Mm-hmm. And so contextualizing uh-huh. where we're at, that we have made significant progress from where we were within the country. And I came of age, you know, as well as anybody who listens to me, you know, in the Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition campaigns. And so... Jesse went from, um, you know, three and a half million votes in 84 to seven million votes in 88 to then 20 years after that, electing the first black president, Mm. now black woman on the Supreme Court. So we've made we have objectively made significant progress. And so that is a very encouraging piece. We look at it from a historical standpoint. That's actually why I have um, we were talking on on our side of this podcast about Stacey Abrams's races. I knew Stacey when she was an unknown state legislator, and that she's become a dominant force in U.S. politics and culture. And so I have some sanguinity about that race. So contextually, things we, we have made great progress, and we are on the cusp of making more. But it does all hang in the balance, and there's going to be additional challenges as we move forward, right? I mean, still, 6% of Black folks voted against Barack Obama. I talk a little bit in Brown as a New White about, I'm sure that there were people who, when uh, Harriet Tubman's like, okay, let's go. People are like, well, I don't really want to go. It's uh, it's kind of okay here on the plantation. So there's always been differences of, um, we have not had 100% unanimity. And it is the next wave of fight. Because you're seeing some of this in Los Angeles, where you've got a lot of the, these recordings came out around you know, black-brown tensions and hostility is can we hold the coalition together once we get past the is it going to be whites or people of color piece? And that's a challenge that is going to be coming. And the LA, I think, is a wake-up call for that in that regard. But I do think we have to fight one thing at a time, build a broad united front of people of color and progressive whites to take the country in the direction we need it to go in, make it an actual democracy where we want people to vote and where we have public policies that meet everybody's needs and then we're going to have struggles and challenges in that time among our different communities then. And it's going to be important to have leadership in each of those communities who understands and is trust in the other communities. And that's going to be one of the challenges we face in this next period. 
You know, I, I think that providing historical context is so incredibly important because it's very easy to get marred by present, right, by the present and recognize that it feels for, for many people that everything just keeps getting worse, right? I right. hear that a lot. I've even said that myself, even though as a Black queer woman, you know, I have seen what has happened with the LGBTQ community and our movement for equity and justice and how quickly in the grand scheme of things, and I use that with quotations, ha has achieved equity, right? Has achieved that you went from a time where people did not know one queer person to now 90% of the country knows somebody that is at least lesbian, gay, or bisexual, and 20% know somebody that is trans or non-binary. That's huge in terms of yeah. in, in terms of growth in those numbers. At the same time though, and Steve, this question, you know, is for you first. At the same time though, you see a full out campaign to erase history. Right now, there are I believe 2000 books that have been banned from K through 12 schools written by people who look like us, right? Who have a perspective that has long since um, been unacknowledged in the growth in this country and, and the movements in this country. So while history helps guide us, if history is continually erased, what does that actually mean? particularly for galvanizing youth that are either Charlene's, you know, child's age or for Generation Z, who we've talked about on, on, on your podcast, who don't necessarily have the depth of knowledge, but now they're being robbed of that learning because they don't have the freedom to learn in the way that you should in a democracy. You know, I very much believe that we are at an inflection point in this country. And that, that's why that informs and animates all contemporary politics. And so it is not an accident that the first black president was followed by an unapologetic white nationalist president. Right. Yep. And that you and then I talk about in my in my current book about there was a rise, a documented rise in in white domestic terrorism tied mm -hmm. to Obama's election, correlated very closely. And so then you have this unapologetic white nationalist presidency for four years, which we were able to defeat. And through the work of the organizers in the largely black state of Georgia, were able to flip control of the United States Senate. And so we were able to move back in a different direction. But this all is hinging in the balance. And I think this is where we're heading towards in terms of 2024. And they're very conscious on the, on the right and on the white right about trying to erase history, about trying to uh, disconnect us from these different pieces, because they're trying to play this long game. That's one of the parts of the Confederate battle plan that I talk about in my book, is they always play this long game, but they get caught up in themselves. And this is part of the thing about the, clearly now we see that the Dobbs decision electorally was, was overreach, and that they thought that they were gonna mm -hmm. you know, march us back towards Handmaid's Tale times, and they have now had this big backlash among young people in general, young women in particular. And so all of this is at play, that the danger, that both the opportunity and the danger is that the right does better understand that they need to do these pieces, whereas the Democrats are far too timid and cautious. And so you have them fomenting white resentment and fear, but you have Democrats afraid to call out 
white resentment and fear in ways that then don't mm-hmm. mobilize and, and, and inspire our base in the way that we need to. But I think that's the challenge of the work for the rest of us who do understand what has to happen is to define the terms of debate and engage them secure in the knowledge that we have the majority and we will in fact win. I think uh, to connect the dots, examples of Virginia, a state that you talk about in your book, right? So I'm in Virginia right now for my wife, who's much better looking than me and smarter than me and a doctor, and I'm a, a poor writer. Uh, and two years Hopefully ago, you, you weren't her fifth choice. To, yeah, uh, I, I was her last, last, <laughs> I was, I was say, her sixth choice. He was lucky. No, <laughs> yeah. And the reason why we're making that comment uh, is on the, and when we were over on the, uh, the Steve and uh, Charlene's podcast, I confessed to everyone that I was Danielle's fifth pick Lies. for South Asian co-host. Uh, but in Virginia, I kept telling folks, you all are underestimating the CRT panic. Mm-hmm. This is the same playbook that Republicans have used as Southern strategy. They use against Muslims. And Sharia is coming in 2010. It animates whites. It animates suburban voters. There was no response from Terry McAuliffe. They're like, eh, we'll just kind of waltz through. Uh, Democrats were called groomers. No response. Deliberately, that was a strategic choice done last year. They're like, eh, we won't respond to this. (laughs) The fact that they're calling us pedophiles. But Mallory McMurrow steps up. White woman. A Boston, right? Elected official. And says, enough is enough responds to her hateful Republican colleagues' attacks on her uh, as being a groomer. And she said she responded because she saw how this BSCRT nonsense was now affecting LGBTQ kids. It started off as 1619, and now it's been supremely weaponized against gay kids, right? And she says, I'm going to fight back. She fights back, and she fights back as, as she says, a white Catholic mother. And she wins enough voters. Not what we're seeing, though. In both 2020 in Virginia, and as I predicted, majority of white women went for Yunkin. 2022, a majority of white women went for the Republican Party. 2020, 2016, a majority of white women went for the guy who bragged about grabbing women by the pee. Charlene, and also Steve, sitting here in 2022, how do we win over the whites? What's the strategy, right? Because some people oftentimes say, people of color, I'm done, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I got to move on. But speaking about winning, winning the politics, as Steve said, and then governing, you need the whites also. How do you convince them that it is in their interest to end white supremacy for good, double entendre intended? And quick, quick note, Mallory McMorrow is from Michigan. She's the Michigan Michigan, I always, keep, uh, state, I always make her go senator. from Boston, my yeah. bad. Yeah, but please, go I'm going to I'm going to toss this to Steve. He had, I know he was is jumping at the bit to answer this question, but I'm going to say I'm I'm I know um, there, Steve has a really good answer and it's powerful. I'm an Asian with bad math. Um, <laughs> hence, I do this for a living. Shame. But Shame. Steve is really Steve's Shame. really. Now, I'm actually kind of wear it as like a badge of honor, although my parents are not impressed. But Steve is really good at math. And hence, I think there's math as part of this answer. Yeah, I well, as we all stri- uh, strive to uh, counter the uh, cultural stereotypes, and that you know, I, 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 I am not known as a black man; it's a dancer. Where Charlene is, uh, somebody oh, who's yeah. that. So you don't want to go pretty, against me, Steve. So yes, no. I, <laughs> um, so. Well, I would say two things. There's a, quali- there's a quantitative answer and a qualitative answer in terms of what we're doing about whites. So quantitative, what Charlene is saying, is that 
there are enough whites who are with us. And so this is the, the historically politics in this country since, uh, you know, whatever, 1790s was a contest between white people. You had progressive whites battling against conservative whites over the whites who were within the middle. And there weren't enough people of color to make the difference, certainly nationally, and particularly in the southern states, obviously, there, there was. But since the, the Immigration Reform Act, which is a whole thing lost to history in terms of how this country was explicitly restricted to whites in terms of immigration policy, and then that came on the heels of the uh, uh, Voting Rights Act, the U.S. has gone from 12% people of color to 40% people of color. And so mm-hmm. now progressive whites in alliance with people of color are the majority. Mm. So that's the first issue. You don't have to be continually chasing and watering down your politics and you know, uh, surrendering your values to try to get more white support because there are enough whites who are actually with us quantitatively, mathematically. And then the qualitative part is there actually is good evidence and then uh, uh, um, empirical evidence and, and, and scholarly evidence throughout the way to maximize white support and to mute these appeals to white uh, nationalism and white fear and white resentment is to call it out. Mm. So Talia Mendelberg is a professor at Princeton, and she has documented, she studied what uh, um, Bush did to Dukakis around the Willie Horton attacks and the, pres- and the 88 presidential race. And she shows through her scholarship that these attacks that are designed to stir white fear and resentment are most effective when they're implicit. And when you make them explicit and you call it out, it reduces the effectiveness of them. And mm. then similarly, this is what was found in Louisiana. So Tim Wise has written about this in terms of fighting against the actual Klansman, David Duke, who mm. ran for uh, governor and senator. He ran twice statewide in Louisiana. Louisiana. The first time, they didn't want to call it out directly. They wanted to ignore it. The second time, they challenged it. And they challenged people to be better and to reject his racism. And that they reduced his support. So that's what it is that is the opportunity, but that's the, there's great fear on the part of most of Democrats and the, certainly Democratic consultancy. They fear that if we call out racism and stand up to it, that everyone's going to flee and run the other direction, and that is not what the evidence shows, and um, that's clearly not not the way to win. And I like just say, you know, we we don't need that that many of them. It's a shrinking part of the population. That's just a fact, and so I. There's also so many voters of color left on the table every election. Right. Every single day, 7,000 people of color added to the population compared to 1,000 whites. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. And but that's the reality, though, is that Republicans, you know, particularly when you when you look at the ways in which they hold on or try and hold on to places like Georgia, you know, when Trump ran, he had 15 percent of black men. He also had 15 percent of uh, Latino men that voted for him. What they are doing is what Charlene just said. It's a peel off game. They're not actually trying. They, I mean, they clearly are not trying to win anybody's votes. Right. Except for <laughs> except for straight white, you know, fake evangelical Christians. That's who you know, who their base is. But with everybody else, they just need to peel off one, two, three percent. Democrats don't run that way. Right. They're not in the peel off game. They want everyone to come into the tent with a full heart, you know, ready to embrace everyone. And so I, I, I wonder, you know, with a couple of things that, that we have seen and just with with the few minutes that that we have left, you know, you have Steve, you you run down state specifically. Right. And in, in terms of um, where where there is movement and where where we should be testing. And we saw in the midterm elections, you know, we're looking at places like in Arizona, for instance, where you had Carrie Lake, who um, was Trump uh, in a dress, like literally what saw herself fit to vacuum the man's carpet where his podium was and thought that that was like a good look. Somehow she was owning the libs with this um with with this with this nod to patriarchy, I, I have no idea, but she ran like him. She talked like him, and she figured that Arizonians were just as racist, um, were just as misogynist um, as he uh, as as he was, and and Trumpism, and she lost, right? And you know, you're looking at a place like Arizona, which never saw itself really on the map. For Democrats, right? It was it was not looked at as a purple state until recently. So I, I want to know, like when we're looking at the Georgias of the world, when we're looking at the Arizonas and Democrats are finally because of the apparatus that has been created by people of color in those states that now you're seeing these states in play, what we should be learning from from those moments and how it can help us potentially realize that we can peel off in the way that Republicans have tried to peel off people of color. So the, the you know, we talk in the, well, actually it was Charlene's uh, insight around the book is to, because we were trying to lift up the lessons from the places where we've actually won. Charlene says, you should give it a, you know, a name, how we describe it. And so we came up with the liberation battle plan. And that in all of these places that have been changed over the past decade, places that were former literal parts of the Confederacy or certainly very red, you have these very consistent common elements, all of it based upon the demographic revolution, but having quality leadership, having a strong civic engagement organization, having a detailed data-driven plan, and playing the long game. And so there are groups and leaders in all of these states who need, we need to add a zero to their budgets. 
is what really needs to happen. So the one Arizona co- the coalition, the 51C3 group, the Arizona Winds Coalition, three dozen folks, they were struggling around with like maybe four, five, six million dollars. And the Democrats still don't get it. They're still spending tens and hundreds of millions of dollars on television ads and television ads trying to target supposedly swing white voters, where they should be spending 50, 60, 70 million dollars hiring up precinct organizers up and down the state in Arizona, in Texas, in Florida, in North mm. Carolina. That is where our majority is. And this is probably we have to have this struggle on the progressive side is how are we spending these resources? Because there's tremendous amount of money. It, it gets totally squandered. People are even talking about they were Democrats underappreciated the Arizona congressional races. And where we're mm-hmm. losing, we're going to likely lose two seats that we could have won in Arizona by like four or 5,000 votes each. Whereas there was a door knocking operation that knocked on two and a half million doors, but it was still starved for resources and hand to mouth. And so Mm -hmm. that is how we win. We have the numbers, we need the organization, and we need the resources, and we need the leadership of the progressive movement Democratic Party to invest in it. Let me me ask this final question. Um, You know, we won Arizona. It's remarkable. Since 1950, it's the first time the Democrats have both senators and the governor. Uh, Fetterman, even despite having a stroke, takes Pennsylvania. Uh, I believe Michigan flipped for the first time and went blue in like, you know, forever. 40 years. But Yeah, but then you look at Texas. Republicans have been in power forever. Uh, Greg Abbott is straight up killing folks. Ted Cruz is like, y'all die. I'm going to go to Cancun. Uh, The police is like, we are super funded, but we're going to sit back and chill and have this shooter kill people. And then Uvalde goes for Abbott as well. And so I've talked to some folks there and they're like, don't give up on us. But then looking at the map, what we're Mm. hearing in the post-22 midterms is Florida's gone, Texas is gone. And I want your take on this, Charlene and Steve. You guys have done the math. Is Are these two states gone for our lifetime? Or should we still be investing in them? Is there hope to somehow convert them moving forward? Because if you can even get Texas, it's a wrap. We can get it. We can get it. I, I think most people don't know this, but it's not even, it's majority black and brown and people of color. I know that's not, the image that people have of Texas, but like today, like not tomorrow, but today. Right. 39% of Texans are white. So this, and this is the total population and the majority mm-hmm. of the eligible voter population. So Biden lost Texas by 600,000 votes. There were 4 million eligible non-voting people of color in Texas. So the math is actually quite obvious, but if we would actually make the investment and do the work. And this is why the still, even despite, you know, the Stacey running up against the obstacles she ran, that the roadmap she laid out remains the past. Stacey told me 10 years ago that we lose by 200,000 votes in Georgia, where our, uh, there's a million and a half eligible non-voting people of color. I'm going to go register them. Mm-hmm. That's how we flipped the United States Senate. That's how we yeah. defeated Trump in, 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 in Georgia. And the math is even better in, um, in, in, in Texas. Wow. And then Florida has more challenges, I think, because there's less organizational infrastructure. But the math is still there. We completely have, lo- have, have lost to history that we came within 30,000 votes of winning both the Senate seat and the Georgia uh, and, 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 and the governorship four years ago. And so that showed what's possible. You have an ins- you know, inspired electorate and organized electorate. That, that was Gillum DeSantis, right, in Florida? Yes, exactly. Neck and neck, like half a percentage point. Exactly. 30,000 votes out of like 10 million. So those states are eminently win- winnable and far more winnable 
through a disciplined organizing voter organization and mobilization strategy on top of the demographic changes is that there are hundreds of thousands of people of color entering the electorate in Texas every year. And so what are we doing to organize and translate that into power? And there's far more evidence that that's going to be effective than to continuing to try to find the latest television ad with whatever just verbal gymnastics to try to change people's minds. All right. Well, there we have it. We should not give up, evidently. And I love that because we don't often leave people with hope. I mean, I guess Waj does. Um, but I don't often <laughs> leave people. But, but Daniel gives a mustard seed hope. of hope. I, I, but it's, I think it's seed, a little bit bigger. And that's today. all you need. It's a, it is. It's a, it's a little bit bigger today because our friends from uh, Democracy in Color joined us, Steve Phillips and Charlene Chang. Thank you so much for making the time to join Democracy-ish. And folks, in our show notes, you will have a link to their podcast that you must check out um, and support people of color doing the work that we are doing, which is trying to save democracy with our voices. Woo-hoo. So thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. I'm Ajahn Lee, and remember, folks, buy Steve Phillips' new book, How We Win the Civil War, Securing a Multiracial Democracy and Ending White Supremacy for Good. And we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah. Inshallah.